0: So I'd like to thank everybody first for coming today and welcome you to the Women in Chemicals and ICIS State of the Industry 2023. You're gonna have an awesome presentation today um, from ICIS, but first we're gonna start off with some introductions of our speakers and our sponsors, and the ICIS Commercial Strategy Director, Allison Jones, is going to provide a quick intro to ICIS. After introductions, we will have about a 45-minute webinar from ICIS team members. Starting with an economic update from senior economist Kevin Swift. Amanda Hay will give an outlook on crude and base oils. Tim Habercost will give an outlook on oleophins and touch a bit on plastics. And we will conclude with Emily Friedman on recycled plastics and sustainability before leaving some time for Q&A at the end. When we get to Q&A, everybody will have an opportunity to ask questions uh, via raising their hand and being given the option to unmute, or you can type them in the chat and we'll be happy to read them aloud. I'll hand it off to Claire to introduce our
1: sponsor. Thank you, Amelia. Today's sponsor is Harcross. For over 100 years, Harcross Chemicals has been delivering unique, sustainable solutions to our customers across North America. This year, we are proud to become a corporate sponsor of Women in Chemicals and their mission to build a more diverse, inclusive, and equitable future for our industry. As an employee-owned specialty chemical manufacturer and distributor, Harcross is driven by the following principle. Working together, we can create a positive impact on and enrich the lives of our customers and the community around us. From our regional offices across the country to our state-of-the-art manufacturing facilities around the globe, our experienced technical staff is here to help you source the right solution or specialty chemical that will take your business to the next level. To learn more about the products and services Harcross offers, potential career opportunities and our commitment to building a more sustainable future, connect with us on LinkedIn or by visiting us at www.harcross.com. With that, it's an honor to introduce Allison Jones, Commercial Strategy Director, as she provides a quick overview of ICIS and the importance of diversity in the industry. Allison joined ICIS in April 2020 from Bloomberg, where she spent 18 years and previously held the role of global research content manager responsible for managing the research content business globally. Allison has a deep understanding of data content analytics and in delivering relevant, timely content to drive customer decisions. Allison is passionate about diversity inclusion and has established a DNI team within ICIS responsible for the development and execution of the focused DNI strategy. And while at Bloomberg, served on both the European and Global Diversity and Inclusion Councils, as well as representing Bloomberg on the board of the London Women's Forum, a network connecting and supporting the advancement of women across the financial industry. Allison?
2: Thank you very much, and absolute pleasure um, to be here, well, I'm saying this evening, it's this evening from a very wet, windy and rainy London, but morning and lunchtime for many of you on the call. Um, Alison Jones, I am the Chief Strategy Officer at ICIS, and as you can probably guess from accent, and the fact I've just referenced, is I am based in London, And I know I speak for all of ICIS and all the speakers and my colleagues when I say we're absolutely thrilled to be here today um, with the Women in Chemicals Network. And we're really many thanks for having us. Um, I'm gonna take two minutes to very quickly introduce ICIS. I hope many of you are familiar with you and just to really set the scene with touching on the importance of inclusion and diversity. Um, ICIS is a data and analytics business um, connecting data, markets, and customers across the chemicals, energy, and fertilizer markets, and thus creating really um, a comprehensive, trusted view of the global commodity markets. And that really does enable those smarter business decisions that help optimize the world's resources. Um, and our independent, it's transparent, and you'll hear from our experts very shortly, um, really do, the market intelligence, it really does inform and drive, you know, thousands of those quality key decisions that have been made across the industry every day. And a key focus, which Emily will go into in a lot more detail, is really supporting our customers in the industry and the transformation to net zero circular business models you know we have we have a rich heritage it goes back 150 years and as it says here it's a global footprint which really is um, critical ensuring that closer proximity and connectivity to our customers and the markets and really ultimately helping drive innovation and that expanded perspectives and insight um when you look at the current business environment which within we all operate And as I said, you'll hear more from my wonderful colleagues shortly on this. It is becoming ever more complex with market volatility, geopolitical factors, And in addition, there is no doubt that the the chemical industry is critical to solving some of the world's most important problems of our time, you know, plastic waste, climate change, just to, to touch on a couple and the pivotal role that it really does play in that in our net zero future. And in order to achieve that diversity of thought and perspective, and to really drive effective decision-making and the innovation of thought even that's going to be required to solve not only the challenges of today, but also the future and to really respond to that dynamic environment. Inclusion, diversity and um, an equitable culture really does come to the forefront. And I don't think I will need to um, explain to everyone on this call the importance of diversity, inclusion, belonging, and equity from both a societal and a business standpoint. If you think inclusion and diversity is inextricably linked to high performance, and there is so much research out there and data to support this, When employees are included, they feel that sense of belonging and connectedness, and a company culture where everyone is celebrated and given an equal chance of opportunity, share of voice, it will increase overall happiness, overall performance, and most critical within the the industry that we operate in, that innovation, and it really is that drive towards a true humanistic culture that we must all strive for. As as you heard in the intro, I joined ICIS just under three years ago. And I did not come from the chemicals industry. I am new to the chemicals industry. I worked for 18 years in the financial sector. And coming into the gender diversity, it was another pretty male dominated sector. I'm not going to lie. And when I started out, I was often the only woman around a table within a meeting. And initially I really were, I felt I was driven and I had to change. I had to be accepted into this amorphous, if you like, um, culture. And I felt I had to fit in. And, but by leveraging my network, Um, of of mentors, um, of sponsors, colleagues, friends, both within my company, but also across the industry. My eyes truly opened to the fact that, you know, my true superpower came from me, from being my authentic self in seeing how myself, my attributes, my um, superpowers, again, my background and experiences really contributed to those different perspectives that and views that I brought um, to drive innovation within my industry and within the, the division that I ran. And it was not by changing my style, my approach, my views, just to fit in with everyone else around the table. And of course, you know, I'm talking gender here, but this is truly applicable to everyone, irrespective of gender, ethnicity, societal background, and whether you have hidden or visible disabilities or of course by your sexual orientation. And this this realization all those years ago um, sparked in me a passion and commitment to change and to drive change both within my company and within the wider finance industry and really ensuring that more inclusive, diverse and equitable environment and culture for others um, both within my working career there and for the future. And at ICIS, if we look purely at gender diversity here, you know, I'm really proud we're at about 50% split, uh, male-female, with strong representation following through about 48% being ma- maintained into leadership roles. You know, however, this is not the, cre- uh, the case across all of our divisions. Um, an example would be in technology again, another um, key area across the the chemical industry. And it's an industry-wide challenge that together we need to focus on over the coming months and years and how we get more STEM um, girls I'm saying girls here, (laughs) I'm feeling my age a little bit, girls into the education system and then obviously progressing into the industry as well and the role we all play as sponsors and um, ambassadors there. Um, I listened to a wonderful panel discussion, I wanted to share this with you, um, with three three CEOs who are really driving change in my view across the chemical industry and it was along with our CEO um, of ICIS, Dean Curtis, And I can, I'd love to share it with anyone who is interested after if you connect with me. And they spoke to how safety is imperative to the chemical industries. It's at the very center, it's the key driving principle. And they also spoke to how diversity, equity, inclusion needs to become the same. It needs to become the very fabric of every company and across the industry. And in my role, I'm responsible for strategy for ICIS. And I see truly that having an inclusion equity and diversity strategy is as important as having a business strategy. And it needs to become the way we do business in the DNA of our culture of each company and across the industry. And and one thing is is clear, and this is my, my closing comment, is we are making improvements but we still have a long way to go. And we're not going fast enough, we can go faster. And we can do that if we work together, that we learn from each other, we support each other. And I will say this part really is key and that we identify role models, sponsors and advocates. And I'm actually going to use the language that I saw on the Women in Chemicals website here as I found it so powerful and that we combine our collective superpowers to connect, collaborate, and share expertise. And with that, I'm going to close um, and hand over
0: to my wonderful colleagues. Many thanks. Thank you so much for that introduction, Alison. And before you guys jump into the meat of your slideshow, we just wanna take a quick second to introduce your colleagues that will be presenting today. So it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Kevin Swift. Dr. Swift is a senior economist for Global Chemicals at ICIS, where he is responsible for quarterly thought pieces addressing key market dynamics and is demand advisor for long-term supply demand balances. He joined ICIS after retiring as chief economist at the American Chemistry Council, also known as the ACC. Prior to joining the ACC, Dr. Swift was Vice President of Research at the Fredonia Group and Director of Research at Predicast, where he started as an economist. He started his career at Dow Chemical. He is a fellow and former president of the National Association for Business Economics and a member of the Harvard Discussion Group of Industrial Economists and National Business Economics Issues Council. Dr. Swift is a member of the Wall Street Journal Forecaster Survey Panel and other for- forecast survey panels as well. Today, he will be speaking uh, and giving an economic update. The next speaker will be Amanda Hayes, the Deputy Managing Editor of the Americas for ICIS. Amanda has eight years of experience writing about and analyzing US energy and petrochemical sectors. She has covered everything along the supply chain from the well-level productivity of U.S. tight oil plays to pipeline infrastructure to the petrochemicals and refined products that make modern life possible. Amanda splits time between analyzing and assessing base oil and butadiene markets and helping to lead the ICIS America's pricing team to produce weekly insight and pricing intelligence. I will hand it to Claire to uh, introduce our last two speakers.
1: Perfect. Thank you, Amelia. Next, we'll have Kim Habercost. Kim joined Chemical Data, now part of ICIS, as director of Olefins in January of 2019. She has over 20 years of chemical industry experience. Most of her career has been focused on the commercial side of the business with experience in both sales and purchasing for multiple corporations. Kim heads the ethylene, propylene, and polypropylene products for CDI's portfolio. In her industry career, Kim has over eight years of experience selling polypropylene and polyethylene. She also has twelve years of experience in olefins, including pipeline scheduling, market analysis, and propylene, ethylene purchasing. She was worked. She has worked for Chevron Phillips Chemical, Flint Hill Resources, and Brascom before joining CDI. Last but not least, we'll have Emily. Emily is an experienced sustainability leader and a senior editor driven by a passion for people and the planet. In her current role, she exposes market trends and provides thought leadership for the North American recycled plastic industry. Prior to ICIS, Emily was a corrosion expert and reliability engineer at ExxonMobil, serving both refining and petrochemical operations. Looking forward to today's event. And with that, I will hand it over to Dr. Swift.
3: OK, thank you for that introduction, and thank you for inviting me. Um, I have a lot of materials to cover, but let's go to the second slide, which shows um, how the forecast for the, the global economy has changed. Let's go back a year. Um, ICIS, Chemical Business, was having their Year Outlook issues issue And uh, probably if I had to summarize it in one sentence is that after the COVID recession of 2020, the rapid recovery of activity in 2021, it was gonna slow in 2022. And boy, did it slow. Um, The invasion of um, Ukraine uh, by Russia set off a spike in energy prices, an energy crisis in Europe. Inflation, which had been building in 2021, um, accelerated, and um, the outlook has changed. Um, I normally do an outlook for the U.S. and global economy mid-month. I've started that. So this sort of reflects how I'm thinking this week. And... um, an appreciable decline or moderation of activity um, this year uh, across the board on a global basis. And But um, what I want to point out is that um, it's been a large decline in the um, expectations for GDP. It's been slashed. Um, likelihood of a recession. Um, the United Kingdom is likely in a recession. Um, at this particular point, uh, it's debatable whether the United States is entering one. Uh, we anticipate that there is a recession it will be mild. Um, in the euro area, um, there was um, some concern about a, a very cold winter. It's been warm thus far, so I think um, Europe has dodged that bullet for now. So let's go to the next slide, which should read uh, the outlook for inflation. It's been raised. Inflation was accelerating largely because of supply chain constraints or supply side constraints, um, all during 20, late 2020, and all during 2021. It's just that the central banks of the world um, didn't believe it. They thought it was transitory. Um, so. Expectations have risen. We got the numbers for the United States. Today, it was an 8% increase in um, in the Consumer Price Index last year. We see that moderating this year uh, and moderating further, but it will really take until about the second half of 2024, barring any unforeseen events, of um, uh, of it returning to where the Federal Reserve wants it to be. So let's go to the next slide, which uh, shows our ICIS leading barometer. It's for for those of you that were members of, or for companies members of ACC, it's uh, very similar to the former CAB index that ACC had. Um, And so that's been signaling since February of last year, um, at peak. And since about maybe April or May, it's been signaling providing signals that are consistent with recession. Um, so um, it's confirmed by other leading indexes, you know, by the Conference Board, by equity um, the OECD has some. They all have been signaling um, recessionary concessions or have signals that are consistent with that. The yield curve has inverted, which in the past has as as historically been associated with um, recession. So we're getting all these signals. That said, I mean, there was a path forward for a soft landing, um, and I think it's actually improved slightly in the last month or so, definitely in the last couple of weeks.
4: But, uh, I'm, um, sorry. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. Can we, we had technical difficulties with Kevin, so I'm trying to follow with his slides, and I don't think he could see my slides. So which which slide are you on now, Kevin? The I'm on, I'm on the unemployment rate. I'm sorry. Oh,
3: no, I'm on slide four. So Okay. Perfect. It should be. ICAS leading barometer. Um, So I anticipate a a mild recession and probably slightly below the consensus forecast, but it's only 0.2 percentage point difference. So it's it's a statistical wash and probably, you know, you could say that I'm kind of aligned with the consensus outlook. Why I believe it'll be a mild um, recession, uh, one, a lot of the excesses that typically get built up didn't get built up in the recovery from the COVID recession, um, over-indebtedness, things such as that, uh, financial euphoria. Uh, you know, there was some in, like, cryptocurrencies and things like that. And then demographic factors, and I'll go into some of those. So let's go to the next slide, slide number five, which shows inflation. Um, it was 8 a 0.0% as of uh, the reading we had this morning. It came out. It's clearly peaked. Um, um, the concerning thing is that uh, it, goods inflation has eased, um, and, uh, particularly uh, it's been brought down by uh, lower gasoline fuel oil, oil prices. Uh, and so the, the price of oil and that outlook um, is going to be key, critical going forward. Inflation has switched from goods inflation this uh, last year to services inflation, which is generally wage led. It's more sticky. So th- that's why I think it's going to be some time before we get inflation down to levels that are um, in the, the range that the Federal Reserve wants. So let's go to the next slide, which shows interest rates. As I said, the um Yield curve has inverted. That's traditionally been associated with a recession. You can see that in the 2006, 2007, 2008 period, and also in 2020, and it's inverted again. Uh, We believe that interest rates will peak um, this year and gradually decline as inflationary expectations come down. Inflation has been the defining issue for the last year. All around the world. So let's go to the next slide. Okay. The unemployment uh, rate. Um, you know, we have a recession. It will not go up to levels that we've had in past downturns, largely because of um, underlying demographics. At the older end, the uh, baby boomers retired. COVID resulted in probably six to eight years of. Re- Retirements being condensed into maybe two years. So at that end, a lot of the, the most experienced people have left the labor force. Replacing that is what would be one of the smallest generations um, in modern times, Generation Z. There's just so few of them. Colleges and universities, and I teach at a local college, they've seen the number of 18-year-olds every year drop by about 20%. So that's the effect at the low end. So it's going to be relatively tight. When I talk with clients, they'll ask about, you know, wonder if labor markets can improve. And I just tell them that your HR departments are going to be very busy and very challenged for the next 10 or 15 years. Um, The millennial generation is in, they're having kids 18 years from now, those kids will start to enter the um, labor force. And that's where um, the resolution of the source comes. So let's go to the next slide, which is housing. The housing cycle peak, it peaked in the first quarter of last year, generally leads the, the overall business cycle of the economy. <clears throat> so much is wrapped up in housing, just $12,000 worth of chemistry in every house north in North America or United States. It's peaked, um, high housing values, higher interest rates, just eroded affordability. It's preventing people who would like to trade up to a bigger home. They, uh, can't afford the, the, the new home or um, prices are starting to moderate so you know as' always said that the cure for high prices is high prices it's just going to take time for that to work out we see that continuing to fall during this year and then starting to recover in 2024 so let's go to the next slide uh, I like to, we always like to look at key end- use markets um, uh, roughly about thirty nine hundred dollars worth of chemistry, about 180 pounds of plastics per um, light vehicle. It's been, the industry's been hindered by semiconductor shortages and um, also some uh, polyurethane shortages during that winter storm in Texas. Um, It's been hampered by that. It's resulted in um, pent-up demand. And so um, the if you wanted to buy a car for the last, you know, two years, and you wanted a specific model, specific color, specific features, and so on and so forth, you had to pay above manufacturer's um, suggested retail price. Um, and so, um, there's all this pent-up demand from people that wanted to buy a car and wanted what they want, uh, model they wanted. The semiconductor shortage is largely been resolved. So that can provide allowance for some some of the to meet some of their pent-up demand, although there's going to be economic fundamentals, um, high unemployment rates, so on things such as that, which will tend to hinder the market. We see this market improving. Not back yet to the prior peak levels. Now let's go to the next slide which shows the PMIs. I love these purchasing manager index. They're all pointing to slowing growth. Another reason a lot of business economists say that we're in a recession, both the manufacturing and services, PMIs, are negative uh, because we in chemicals sell to other manufacturing industries mostly. Um, I looked at the details there. Those are well below 50, the break-even point. When it's below 50, it's contracting. And what's troubling is the order backlogs and new orders are well below um, the uh, 50 breakeven point they're contracting, and they've actually, and some of those have been going down, decelerating. So let's go to the next slide, please. Number 11, industrial production is just sort of a proxy for a lot of the industries we're looking at. Um, November was weak. Next is in this week, we will get the December figures. Uh, this likely has peaked um, and will ease. Uh, there's an inventory overhang and a need for correction the high-dollar-affected exports, although the weak dollar lately will help mitigate that. But we see that as easing next year, this year, and possibly easing the year after that the recovery actually starts. So um, down to my second to the last slide, just looking at some of the details of some of these industries. we, we, I follow those, these industries, um, even semiconductors, if we were to go back a year ago, um, there was a positive expectation for semiconductors improvement um, this year. It's um, a um, shortage has turned into a glut. Uh, a lot of the other key industries that we look at are um, in decline. Uh, Some of the ones that kind of stand out this year will be uh, motor vehicles, um, aircraft and parts, and just a a few others, uh, tires, which of course goes with automobiles. So let's go to the next slide. Um, This is sort of a headline figure. I uh, have always been troubled with the um, Federal Reserve Board's industrial production indexes. And one of the reasons um, I just didn't love joining ICIS. Was the, the access to the data? I had started a program at ACC where we tried to tabulate all of the um, data we could get our hands on, you know, from other trade associations, parts of the government, et cetera. I've been able to improve that work at ICIS, and this is just sort of a headline figure for basic chemicals and synthetic materials. Is sort of the outlook. It's a much broader measure than our supply and demand database. I present this as sort of an alternative to those industrial production indexes. Um, it's already declined. Chemicals is a leading industry. We, we lead the rest of the economy. So if we experience pain here, we can, can be pretty certain that the rest of the economy is going to experience pain. And that's what we're going to see this year. It'll be off a little bit and then improving next year. So. I'm going to go mute myself, and we will uh, head on to the next speaker. Thank you.
5: I believe that is me, so hello, everyone, and thank you for the opportunity. Um, My name is Amanda Hay, and I'm the Deputy Managing Editor for the America's Pricing Team um, on the editorial side of our business. Um, Actually, our global um, editorial team management uh, is heavily female, which is something that I'm pretty proud of. Um, So for ICIS, I currently handle key portfolio of base oils, which for those unfamiliar is um, ultimately um, becomes a finished lubricant or a process oil that is used in your chemical manufacturing processes. Um, So today I'm going to cover a couple of market drivers for crude and derivative in 2023. Um, Crude supply, demand, price volatility impacted all of our lives last year very heavily from high gasoline costs um, on the personal side and diesel prices soaring so that your delivery costs were more expensive, um, soaring stock costs for your chemical processes. So Prices have eased a little bit, but there's some lingering issues um, and impacts that we are going to see uh, spill into this year, at least through H1. Um, thank you. Um, so, Russia's invasion of Ukraine obviously was one of 2022's biggest um, headlines for crude and derivative markets. Um, U.S. chemicals and lubricant makers felt the impacts of those soaring crude prices um, pretty acutely, and uh, global refiners. We're scrambling to maximize fuel production with Russian supplies cut off to Western countries. Um, So distillates, uh, that includes diesel fuel, were in highest demand last year. Um, And so that drove high refining rates all year. Uh, But we did not see significant inventory builds of distillates, so rates stayed very, very high. Um, Gasoline was rebounding strongly last year as travelers and commuters came out of the pandemic. <clears throat> so why are fuels important to chemicals? Uh, besides adding logistics costs for manufacturers, uh, fuels are the primary business of the refinery. It accounts for about um, 80%, up to 90% of the barrel and um, petrochemicals and lubricants, um, which is what base oil is, um, are a very small portion of that. So these take a backseat to fuels and uh, fuels were in the driver's seat uh, most of the year. So we saw aromatics go toward octane demand instead of using chemical production. We saw feedstock that would have been used to make base oil um, go toward diesel production instead. Uh, And refiners will continue to prioritize fuels in 2023. Next slide. So Russian sanctions, um, the crude price reaction to Russia's invasion was really swift. Russia is one of the largest crude and crude products exporters in the world. Um, So Western actions against it have upended the trade flows and tightened crude and crude products markets. Um, The invasion came at a time when demand for refined products were already outpaced by, um, demand was outpacing available supplies because we were coming out of the recession Um, and global refinery capacity had um, shrunk with closures that occurred during the pandemic. So, you know, crude spiked to multi-year highs, as we all know. Um, But interestingly, you saw an even greater uplift in the cost of low silver VGO um, relative to crude, and all of that was demand driven. So that's what's feeding, um, that's what's going into the diesel pool. And refiners ran out, Full blast last year to maximize the fuels production in the wake, particularly diesel. Um, so these prices, you know, have come off a little bit, uh, but there are potentially some pain points that could come in February. Um, that's when EU sanctions on Russian crude products will begin. Uh, much of that is VGO, and um, Europe really needs that. So um, additionally, you know, Putin has signed a decree banning supply of crude and crude products um, to any nation that imposes the G7 price cap from Feb 1. So um, these are issues that could support crude prices um, in the short term, um, but then offset a little bit by the weaker demand that we're seeing right now. Next slide. So what happened to prices, um, these impacts downstream were also swift, swifter than we usually see. Uh, base oils rapidly rose to all time highs on the back of uh, strong VGO and diesel markets. Um, so as I mentioned, VGO can make either diesel or base oil, um, but refiners were preferring to route it to the diesel pool. Um, Russia is a major exporter of VGO, and so the shortage created unprecedented premium of VGO over crude. It was about four times historical levels, um, so it was incredibly expensive and in strong demand. The diesel demand for diesel um, was so strong that even at one point, um, you know, you can see on this graph that diesel prices met base oil prices, um, but base has to go up to justify its production. Um, so if your oil changes were very expensive last year, this is why. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, similarly in chemicals, um, you can see here on this graph, a steep climb in the spring of 2022. Uh, this is our ICIS um, IPEX index and, uh, we have a weekly and the monthly IPEX. Um, so, the weekly IPEX tracks 12 key commodities um, in the chemical space uh, based off of spot prices. The monthly IPEX does uh, based off of contract. Um, so, we keep uh, keep track of, of how the general sector is trending overall. Um, you can see, though, that uh, chem markets are now recovering, and in terms of price, um, as supply is lengthened and and demand has dropped. Next slide, please. So what are the major market drivers we're looking at for 2023? Um, On the crude supply side, there are concerns that remain, uh, but general improvement is expected mostly because of uh, weaker demand relative to this time last year. Russian sanctions, obviously those are still in place. uh, That reduces global supply of crude and crude products to various um, Western countries uh, that have imposed sanctions. Uh, We will though add 3 million barrels a day of refining capacity uh, on a global level this year, making up for um, some of the capacity that was lost in the pandemic. And so that's going to ultimately help um, refine product shortages. But most of this is coming on towards the back half of the year. So it won't be there when the EU sanctions kick in. And that's why there could be some pain points um, that we see there. Logistics constraints are improving. Supply chain snarls are easing. And some of this is due to demand concerns. Obviously demand, um, we're seeing it, it, it it's weak. Um, recession concerns are sort of clouding the demand outlook and those are being priced into some you know, major companies' forecasts for the year. High energy costs is really weighing on European manufacturing. High interest rates, um, you know, as Kevin says, continuing to affect U.S. economic activity. Um, And as he mentioned about the manufacturing PMI, um, that's an excellent indicator of general economic health uh, that's contracted for two straight months now um, after sitting in expansion territory for over two years um, as we came out of the pandemic. So that means prices are easing. We're seeing macroeconomic fears sort of weigh a little bit more heavily on on crude and other prices than supply concerns may be weighing. Um, So prices have come down and uh, when they began, they began to fall, you know, late 2022, when we started to see a little bit of the slowdown that aligns with the, what the manufacturing PMI is showing us as a decline in slowing activity. Um, these are spilling into 2023, and we're seeing um, some continued declines in certain markets this January. Um, mostly demand-driven inventories are outpacing the available supply. There's a few wild cards in here. Um, You know, these factors could add some pressure. Russian sanctions, obviously, those will continue to block access to crude and crude products by Western countries. Um, Will non-OPEC countries from the US increase their production of oil? Um, That may be difficult, especially in the US, if drilling CapEx is conservative uh, due to economic concerns. how fast and how much will Chinese demand come back um, with relaxed COVID policies, Um, that's expected. So how that will ultimately um, play in the global crude and crude products balance um, or remain to be seen. But we do expect that demand to come back. And with that, I'm wrapping up my portion and I'm going to hand over to Kim Haberkost who will go a little bit deeper into Um, some pet
6: chems with an update on olefins. Yes, hi, everybody. My name is Kim Habercost, and I am um, the director of olefins and polypropylene for chemical data. Um, Today, I'm going to just touch on the ethylene and propylene um, markets, which, you know, are the largest building blocks for hundreds of derivative chemicals and plastics. Um, they're used as raw materials to make products like detergents, packaging, cosmetics, plastics, rubbers, fibers. And they've been key in the development of many applications, cleaning products um, or applications that, you know, make our world safer, uh, more efficient, whether it's in automotive parts, um, at appliances, medical applications, cleaning products, food packaging. So by far the biggest applications for ethylene and propylene are directly into polypropylene and polyethylene plastics. So if you look around the room you're sitting in, uh, there's chances are very good that a large portion of the plastic items you see come directly from ethylene or propylene. So the US has seen a tremendous um, growth. Uh, If you wanna advance to the next slide. thank you so the us has seen a tremendous amount of growth in the production of olefins over the last 10 years due to um, the shale revolution ethylene's mainly produced through the process of steam cracking which can utilize many different feedstocks as raw materials but it was the abundant natural gas production from the shale fields that led to the extraction of cheap ethane, which gave the US a significant cost advantage in producing ethylene compared to the rest of the world, which mainly relies on uh, naphtha cracking, which is expensive um, and an expensive way to produce ethylene. So because of this cost advantage, the US has, uh, we've just gone through a wave of new ethylene cracker builds. We saw 41% increase in ethylene capacity from 2015 to 2020. And then over the last three years, we'll see another uh, 13% increase in capacity, bringing us to over hundred billion pounds of capacity uh, compared to a global capacity of about 500 billion pounds or billion pounds, excuse me. Um, The last ethylene cracker to start in the US was a shell cracker in Pennsylvania, in Western Pennsylvania, which started in November. And it is ramping up rates as we speak. Uh, Go ahead to the next slide. So most of this new capacity were all ethane only crackers, which utilized cheap ethane from the shale natural gas production. And we saw ethane consumption for the production of ethylene increase from 60% of the cracker feedstock in 2010 to around 87% today. And this is this has provided like a, a major shift in the US for ethylene production and ethylene de- derivative production. And many of these new units that were built Um, were integrated sites, meaning the downstream derivatives were built along with the crackers. So for example, we've also seen a very similar similar growth pattern for polyethylene capacity over the last 10 years um, of about 40% growth in 2015 to 2020, and about a 15% growth from 2020 through the end of this year. Um, So recently, we all know, and, and Kevin covered this earlier about the economics, but we've the global economies have been on a roller coaster ride for many reasons. Um, and the US ethylene demand has been fairly resilient during the pandemic because of its use in applications like PET water bottles and packaging demand. So, think about all the delivery items you've been receiving through the pandemic, um, Amazon packages, things like that that have been ordered, um, a new way of behavior for the consumer. But most recently, these recession fears that Kevin discussed it's caused global demand to drastically decline. So the combination of all this new capacity with soft demand has brought the cracker operating rates in the U.S. down to an average around 81% in 2022, despite the U.S. hitting not only production records, total production records, but also um, export records as well. Tracy, go ahead to the next slide, please. So the supply, the current supply demand imbalance in the ethylene market has had its toll on prices and margins as well. Um, Ethylene spot prices hit an all-time low in April of 2020 with the start of the pandemic, the lockdown, the crash in oil prices. Uh, But then a year later, you know, we, the whole petrochemical industry suffered the largest and most impactful one-time event we've ever experienced during Valentine's Day with the winter storm URI. They brought freezing temperatures all along the Gulf Coast for several days, causing 75 to 80% of the industry to shut down. So ethylene quickly became a very short market, causing prices and margins to skyrocket in 2021. Um, Ethylene cracking margins peaked in 2021 around $0.50 and have fallen around to about $0.03 today. So that's the order of magnitude we're we're talking about. The Russia-Ukrainian war at the beginning of last year caused the crude oil prices, and natural gas prices to spike, and that brought the cost of ethylene cracker production and feedstock costs up as well. So the average production costs in 2022 are about 10 cents higher than they were in 2021. So the higher costs also chewed into ethylene margins. Uh, Next slide, please. So overall, though, for ethylene, real quick, long-term outline outlook is still pretty positive. Um, similar to last year, 2023 for ethylene will be challenging um, and highly dependent on global economics. Operating rates are expected to stay in the low 80% range on average this year. Uh, we, we should see continue to see record-breaking production as all this new capacity starts to ramp up. Uh, we're expecting to see somewhere about a 5 to 7% growth in production this year. Um, we'll continue to see higher export volumes. In fact, enterprises expanding their export uh, capacity in the fourth quarter. Uh, so we'll see exports uh, ramp up even further. We'll be, become more reliant on the global markets and we'll, we'll utilize the export opportunities to balance the U.S. market. Uh, but the U.S. will continue to have a cost advantage compared to the rest of the world. Uh, as, and as global demand picks up and we're expecting it to re- pick up and recover in the second half of the year, ethylene markets should also be stronger in the second half of the year. And if we look at propylene, propylene is a very complex market, mainly due to the fact that 85 to 90 percent of it is produced in the U.S. as a byproduct during the production of either gasoline in the refineries or during the production of ethylene and steam cracking. So only 10 to 15% of the propylene is made on purpose in the US today. Thus, the supply of propylene is heavily influenced by gasoline and ethylene markets. So when gasoline or ethylene markets swing or when refineries or ethylene producers have plant outages, propylene goes along for the ride. And this makes propylene supply inherently volatile and arguably more so than any other community, uh, commodity that we cover. Um, there have been many times over recent years when short-term propylene supply hasn't, has not been temporarily unable to match the demand, and this has resulted in you know, unpredictable, very disruptive price spikes, uh, which often last for several months at a time. So the growth in the propylene capacity over the last 10 years has come more out of necessity rather than a feedstock cost advantage, which drove the ethylene growth. So prior to 2010, the propylene market was starting to see a decline in propylene production, not only as the refineries began to run lighter shale oil streams, um, which leads less propylene byproduct, but as ethane became the cheapest ethylene cracker feedstock, ethylene producers also chose to run higher ethane at the expense of heavy feedstocks like propane or butane or naphtha, which all produced significantly more propylene byproduct. Um, By far, ethane makes the least amount of byproduct propylene of all the cracker feedstock options. So the effect of these shifts at the refineries and the crackers, um, the effect was a tight propylene market. And to fill the supply gap, the propylene industry turned to on-purpose propylene production. The majority of the capacity growth that we've seen in the propylene market in the last 10 years has been through the addition of three propane dehydrogenation units or PDH units in the US, which directly converts propane into propylene. And the last unit, PDH unit was started in 2018 by enterprise and they will be starting a second um, PDH unit this year. But the propylene market's mainly driven off of supply demand imbalances at the moment and it's gonna be a race to see which comes first. Uh, Currently, the propylene market's leaning to the long side of the equation, given the extreme weakness in derivative demand, but on paper, the propylene market today would be balanced balanced to tight if demand were at more normal levels. Uh, So 2023 will be another volatile year for propylene as three and a half billion pounds of new derivative capacity is in the process of starting up now through the end of 2024 um, with only 3 billion pounds of new supply expected to start in the same timeframe. So the market will remain on the short side of the scale leading to um, price volatility, volatility overall. Tracy, next slide, please. But like ethylene, propylene prices have seen some major swings over the past few years. Prices fell at the beginning of the pandemic and climbed to a 10-year high during the Texas freeze in 2011, or 2021, excuse me. The combination of high inventories and the soft demand, the economic recession fears, that's all put downward pressure on propylene prices for most of 2022. Uh, During the fourth quarter last year, propylene prices had fallen to negative or break even PDH economics leaving almost no margin and little incentive for those on-purpose units to run. Uh, Prices have rallied a bit here in January on supply outages, but the propylene market remains long with high inventories. And as we move through 2023 and see the startup of more derivative demand, propylene prices are expected to see upward pressure as demand outweighs supply. The magnitude of uh, the volatility will be determined by how quickly the global economic, uh, global economies rebound this year. Um, but until new propylene supply starts later in 2023, there's more upside to propylene prices than downside. Uh, Tracy, I think given the timing, I'm gonna skip the next two slides and finish up with my last slide on margins. So, Margins were at an all-time high in 2021 during the short market conditions caused by the freeze or after the freeze. And prices, like we said, fell throughout 2022, bringing, meaning margins have declined as well. So splitter margins are just about back to pre-pandemic levels, while PDH margins have deteriorated to below production costs. Um, These are the lowest margins we have seen in the industry uh, for PDH units ever since they started running. Um, But we are projecting PDH margins will increase in 2023 and hopefully return to pre-pandemic levels uh, by the end of the year. But overall, propylene's in for another volatile year. And as I stated before, the magnitude of this volatility is highly dependent on the rebound of global economies. Um, I think our general overview is that demand's gonna be stronger the second half of the year versus the first um, as global economies recover. But for propylene supply demand imbalances throughout 2023 have the potential to cause pricing disruptions, especially if the base demand increases more quickly than expected. Um, I think I'll leave it there for my quick update and high level overview of the olefins market. Um, I really appreciate your time today, but I'll turn it over to Emily, see how much she can get in in a short, very short amount of time. <laughs> Sorry, no I'm...
4: problem at all. Yeah, so we're going to jump through these slides again. My name is Emily Friedman. I'm the senior editor for Recycled Plastics. So I cover US recycled PET, US recycled polyethylene, and eventually US recycled polypropylene. So, Tracy, we can kind of just skip through the first few slides, kind of one after another. Basically, we've all felt uh, the tidal wave of environmental support for uh, tackling climate change. Uh, making sure greenhouse gas emissions are under control, and of course, tackling plastic waste. So because of that, we've seen a lot of consumer brand companies make commitments around sustainability, whether it's using more recycled plastic or recycled content in their products and packaging, Uh, maybe it's using less virgin, maybe it's making their plastic products or packaging recyclable. Um, So that's on the the consumer brand company side. And the next slide, Tracy, we have seen a lot of legislation. So governments are also responding to this consumer demand for a a greener and more circular future. Um, So arguably, you could say Europe has maybe been at the forefront of pushing for some of this regulation, but the U.S. is definitely, not far behind. Um, so Tracy, if you could go to the next slide. Uh, we have Pretty limited federal legislation when it comes to recycled plastics, but we have a lot going on at the state level. So it's whether it's supporting chemical recycling passing laws. Um, that include extended producer responsibility for plastic packaging passing laws that require recycled content and packaging and products. Um, so you can see just a snapshot here of several states that have made those commitments um, and are kind of pushing the needle here in the US. So on the next couple of slides, I'm gonna walk through the recycled plastics market in terms of supply and then go through some pricing trends. So there are two main methods of making recycled plastic. One is through mechanical means, the other is through chemical. So this is just a brief breakdown of what mechanical recycled plastic means and what it looks like. So you take that bottle that you drink water out of, you put in your recycling bin, it gets sorted at a facility and then crushed up into a bale, like a hay bale, but of all plastic bottles. So that's the first picture we see. That plastic bale is then sent to a recycler who takes the bale, cleans it up a little bit more, and then will shred that material into what we call flake. So that's the middle picture you see. That flake is then maybe cleaned up even more, removed of contaminants, and then heated up and extruded into a pellet. Think of like the Play-Doh or a spaghetti maker, you know, that extrusion, and then of course cut into little pieces. And the pellet is kind of what virgin plastics already look like. Uh, So at this point, we're in a very similar position to what a virgin plastic might look like. And that can go into things like water bottles. It can go into other plastic products or, for example, for PET, it can be spun into things like fiber. So polyester, the shirts and clothes you probably are wearing right now. Um, So just a snapshot, Tracy, on the next slide, we'll see the US supply picture when it comes to recycled plastics. So ICIS has agglomerated data that shows there are over 270 individual recycling facilities here in the U.S. alone. That amounts to over 6.6 million tons of input capacity for processing into recycled plastics. So pretty big footprint, and this industry is only growing, especially, like I said, with all this uh, awareness around circular plastics in the circular economy. Now switching gears on the next slide, we'll go to chemical recycling. I don't have a process in picture for this because there are so many different methods that all fit into the category of chemical recycling. So you might have heard the terms molecular recycling or advanced recycling. Those are also kind of synonymous. Um, And you might be most familiar with a process like pyrolysis, for example, where mixed waste plastic is heated up under limited oxygen and pressure. And it's turned back into a hydrocarbon stream, kind of like a version of refined crude oil, and it has to go back through petrochemical refining and processing. Um, So on the next slide, you'll see we don't have a snapshot of the current uh, chemical recycling capacity in the U.S. We do have that data at ICIS. But if you look at just the announcements alone, so basically what people have been uh, committing to, uh, companies have been publicly committing to, we expect over 5 million tons of input capacity by 2025. That's two years from now. Um, But these don't come without some uncertainties, you know, especially in the financial environment that we're in now. Um, we, We could see delays or cancellations of facilities. Also, people tend to think, oh, it's chemical recycling, advanced recycling. You take trash and it gets turned into treasure. That's not necessarily the case. You know, these processes are still very specific in terms of the types of feedstock they can take and what that quality has to be for the process to be able to work efficiently. Um, And then lastly, legal status, you know, we have seen some debate over the carbon footprint of some of these processing technologies, as well as some um, places and countries still consider some of these technologies to be something like incineration or burn for energy. So that's a little bit on the supply side. Now jumping into market trends. I'm not going to get into the pricing numbers, but I'm going to tell you how there's really two different market trends for recycled plastic. So the first one is the fact that historically, recycled plastic was used as a cost sensitive substitute for virgin plastic. So people only used it because it was cheaper. You know, through that mechanical recycling process, the grinding, the re-extruding, Typically, the material will lose some of its performance characteristics, and so people would buy recycled resin if uh, their end application could handle, you know, that variation in performance characteristics, and that way they could save some money. So there are still several grades of recycled resin that are under the same trend. Usually it's material that's maybe mixed in color, and so when they extrude it into a final product, it's either going to be a gray, a brown, or a black kind of color, or maybe it's from a post-industrial Source, So it doesn't have that marketing appeal of saying, oh, this is that bottle that I recycled. No, instead, this is maybe coming from production scrap or production waste. But the other trend is what's a little bit newer to this market. And on the next slide, you'll see that several grades of recycled plastic now get a very large premium to that of their virgin counterparts. Now this is because of those consumer brand commitments to use recycled plastic or the regulation requiring people to use recycled plastic, but there's only so much supply of this material, whether it's a clear or what we call natural material, um, that a brand company might want to use because they can maybe color it to, to look like their existing products. So here in the graph, the red line is going to be your recycled resin, the purple line is going to be your virgin resin. And as you can see, you know, even with the softening in the market of the virgin commodity, we still have seen very strong prices for recycled resins. So I know we're a little over. I'm going to leave it at that. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer and I think we're going to be taking questions virtually and I'll, I'll turn it back over to Amelia.
0: Thank you very much, Emily, and all of our presenters today. Really appreciate all that great information, and I know we didn't get much time to hear from Emily, but I am excited to announce that we are going to be having a sustainability panel in April um, around Earth Day, so hopefully we'll get to hear more then. But as we wrap up today, I just want to say thank you again to ISIS or ICIS, I'm sorry, Our speakers, Allison, Kevin, Amanda, Kim, and Emily, and to our sponsor today, Harcross.
6: So thank you everybody. Have a great day. Thank you.